This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I'm happy to have my friend Stefano Pertigliati. Stefano's a great lawyer out of Jacksonville, Florida, uh, and he recently got a $14.6 million verdict on a really tough trucking case, and he's nice enough to come on and talk to us about how he did it in the hope that the rest of us can get those kind of great verdicts too. So how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm happy to be seeing you. Before we jump into the case, I want to talk a little bit about you. So tell me a little bit about your background. Sure. So I, um, I'm Italian. I grew up in Brazil. My family was a pretty traditional Latin family with you know a very hardworking dad, a mom that was our guardian angel. <laughs> um, I have a brother and a half-sister. And my brother and I were only a year and three months apart. So he was my best friend my whole life. Wow. I uh, still is. And he's actually the reason I'm a lawyer. Before law school was running some family businesses with my dad and um, had a, a romantic relationship that, that you know, kind of woke me up to some priorities that I needed to <laughs> readdress. And uh, my brother was in college and had a plan to go to law school. And I said, you know, I need to focus on completing school and doing things the right way. Because I was making a lot of money, but young and, and, and spending a lot too and thinking I knew more than anybody because I was doing so well, you know, relatively speaking for a young guy. So I, I dropped everything. I said, Bruno, I'm going to come over to Tampa. And uh, he goes, oh, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pull out the couch. And he goes, no, no, I'm coming to Tampa <laughs> to go to school with you and finish school. And he's younger, right? So, But he had caught up, caught up to me in terms of credits at that point. Um, and uh, sure enough, I moved out there. We finished college together. He was going to law school. And I said, nah, heck, I'll go with you. Wherever you end up, I'll make sure I, I'll get in as well, and we'll, we'll do law school together. <laughs> and um, halfway through, I had a chance to work on a really cool PI case, personal injury case, and I was, you know, the bug bit me. <laughs> and my brother had no more interest in law. <laughs> we completely switched. He now uh, runs all of our family businesses out in Orlando. Um, and I'm practicing law full time. That's awesome. Now, just in talking, as I've known you for a long time, uh, you've had some business experiences that uh, have had application to your law practice. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the the businesses we have, based out of Orlando, is a human behavioral research group, 
And it's so we have an university called Florida Christian University. Inside that university, we have this lab group, whatever you call it, where we study human behavior, communications, uh, motivation, personality from different uh, fields of study, from uh, social studies all the way through neuro, uh, neurosciences. And before law school, uh, a big part of what I did was consult with businesses like IBM, L3, AT&T, Marriott, you know, big Fortune 500 corporations on how to build, you know, high performance teams, uh, leadership, uh, executive coaching. And we actually train a lot of professionals in the area of mental health and coaching psychology on how to use some of the tools that we've developed. And at its very core, you know, the primary tool that we have, which is a personality assessment tool, affects what we care about and how we communicate. So in the same, you know, so for example, if we're talking about sales, right, the same car uh, has different values to different people. Some people may appreciate the flashiness and the status of it. Some people may appreciate the reliability of it. Some people may appreciate the power. Same car, different values. So it's very much the same in the case that we're trying. Same case, different values to different people. Some people are very concerned with the fact that a rule was broken. Some people would be very forgiving of someone breaking a rule if you know there's good reason for it. Uh, some people can really feel, sympathize with the social effects of injuries, of physical or mental uh, limitations. And other people aren't as driven by that. They want to see numbers. So actually, I, I often, during jury selection, I'm not leading Vodire. I'm sitting there taking notes of every little cue I can to get... Uh, uh, everybody's personality assessment figured out as you know the best I can without putting them through an assessment. And then once I get into opening, I'm already speaking to different people based on first the way that they like to hear things and in the subject matter that, that they care about. And you know, and we try to be mindful of that through trial. So what are some things you do to try to figure out, you know, what motivates different kind of people? And your you know your car example one worked for me because I bought a, a nice red convertible sports car recently and people come up like, well, what kind of engine does it have? Does it have a B12? Does it have this? And they ask me all these questions like, I don't know, it's red and it's pretty and it, the top goes down and it looks like, <laughs> I like to drive it around. I don't know the details. I mean, <laughs> yeah, my, my, that, that's a great example. My wife, for example, wanted to make sure we had a third row and I'm like, for what? Well, in case, you know, someone comes to visit and we yeah. can keep everybody. And I'm like, Brittany, that that's not going to happen. We yeah. we have two strollers, we have car seats. Yeah. We could have five rows. We're, we're not going to be fitting people into our car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, yeah. So, um, very generally speaking, right? So there are two primary behavioral tendencies that separate us into four quadrants. The first one is assertiveness. So more assertive people tend to be more extroverted, more outwardly uh, uh, inclined. And the, way I, the way I define it very simply is they have a need to influence the environment according to what they think, feel, and believe. So a very quick example is my dad. My dad is the ultimate assertive person. 
we could be in my car driving around my town going to do some i need to do i'm driving somewhere i'm very familiar with he's never been to before but the moment i get into a parking lot i'm about to turn into a parking spot he's gonna be like oh that's not a very good spot why don't you park a little bit down there right some people would know that it's not a good spot and really recognize it but have no need to express the disagreement with my selection of a parking spot but some people know they have the need to to express that and, and, and influence the, the environment around them. On the other hand, you have people that look to the environment for cues as to what they should think, feel, and believe. They're they're mindful of what are the, the protocols, what are the rules, what are the expectations. And oftentimes you have people that won't even leave a position or start something unless they know that they're not gonna violate right the the norms in, in that environment so that, that's the first spectrum right from from taking your cues from the environment and imposing your cues on the environment and then the other continuum that that interacts with this prior one is uh your uh, responsiveness well, what do you respond to let's put it simply are you more task objective oriented or are you more people or human oriented so for example you have people that come to a meeting and they've got paper and pen and what they need to get done and they're ready for business and then you have people that come in and they're prancing around and checking on everybody and oh i forgot a paper or a pen uh, let me I, I didn't realize we had to take notes it's like what are you doing what are you here for <laughs> they're here for the interaction right um so that's a very simplistic way to put it but if you put those two continuums right on, on top of each other, one going left to right, the other one going top to bottom, you now have four quadrants. And not everyone is just one of those quadrants for a combination, but uh, I can confidently say about 70% of our behavior comes from two of those. So how do you assess during jury selection where people fall in those quadrants? Yeah, so I'm looking for give you an example from this case. I had this one potential juror. She was uh, number five. So she was very high up on the list of potential jurors that are going to be sitting on the panel. She sued her sister because of an estate issue. And she, we, we typically ask, has anyone been involved in litigation or anything like that? And said, so, yeah, she, I sued my sister. She had no qualms about it. Uh, she said, yeah, we we always got along and everything were, you know, was fine. But when you know, it came down to it. I didn't agree with what she was doing. It was more of a principal thing. And, and we sued her and I won. Everything that I said was right or wanted, you know, the, the judge agreed. So clearly not someone that's as concerned with the human aspect of a case <laughs> that they're going to be with the yeah. right or wrong and all consequences. We don't care, you know, as long as we get the right and wrong. Yeah. So, you know, there are cues like that that you look for. So even the way that um, the way that people interact, uh, some people are more assertive and, and they get up and they grab the mic and the way that they carry themselves is a little bit more outwardly and others are not as outwardly, right? They, or, or the, what was the question again? Or yeah, what can I, you know, what, what would you like me to say type thing? They're, they're looking for you to tell them what to do. That's more of a non-assertive person. And then... You know whether they're more task oriented or people oriented like i just you know give that example that's actually the, the to me the easier part of it you know um, we ask them what what are they into what do they like to do you know their work oftentimes will tell us 
um, what, what they're into. What the, we ask people, what do you, what do you value at work? Because this was, this case involved um, wage loss and a client no longer being able to operate a semi. So some people loved, uh, you know, meeting people from all over the world. Others liked that there's no limit to how much I can make. So how do you use, okay, so you're in jury selection, you're trying to size up the potential jurors on these two axes, the, you know, objective versus people oriented. And then are they putting their will on the world versus they're looking to the world for cues on how to think? How do you use that? Right. So one of the big lessons we teach in that arena of what I do is communication is not what you say. It's what people understand, number one. So number two, you need to communicate in a way that they understand, not that you like to, right? So communication isn't just a a matter of means. It's also a matter of substance. If I have a juror that's clearly sort of a people-oriented, assertive, that's typically what we call the extrovert, I'm I'm not going to waste time trying to persuade them of some technical rule violation. Um, So in this case, uh, it had rained. Uh, Everyone agreed that your speed should be reduced operating a semi on 392.14 hazardous conditions. And it wasn't the main factor that caused the crash. In my opinion, it was inattention. So I wasn't going to push it too hard. But for the people that I had on there that were rule followers, that cared about exactly what the rules were, I was going to give them that tool or, or, or that argument to make in the liberation. But to the individual that is not as much of a rule follower, what I'm going to talk to them about is the fact that my client didn't put out the warning triangles to the rear of a semi all 200 feet. Because can you imagine this guy out there in the middle of 95, raining, He's gone 100 feet, another 120, and now 140. I mean, at some point, you need to be careful. You got to get out out of the road, right? And that person is going to be more understanding of my client's decision not to go the whole 200 feet. 160 is enough, and I'm going to get back into the safety of my tractor. So, you know, it's you also have to know in your case what jives better with each personality style, right? So when we're talking about radiology and you know whether this was a herniation or a, a bulge um, there wasn't much an issue in this case but that's someone that i want to i want to present that to the person that's more technical typically someone that's objective on you know on the task focused and non-assertive right they're going to take in they're going to care about the little details they're not just focused on the bottom line because what happens is they take that, they value that, they can also communicate that better than someone else would. So my my plan or strategy is that then in jury deliberations, they come with their strong points and their strong ways to argue and, and, and what they care about, armed with what you know is helpful to me. Did that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And so there's a, something you told me when you and I were talking to prepare, and it was such a brilliant quote. Uh, I want to ask you about it. One of the things, and I, again, this is your quote. I'm just, it was brilliant enough that I want to repeat it and ask about it. It's talk to the juror, not the jury. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We could address this as a, a, at many levels. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, if I'm being very frank with you, I think I've experienced 
fear of a jury. I, I should I think I know I have ex experienced fear, but I think of a jury. And what do, what do I mean by that? It's it's a group of them, and I'm over here by myself. Um, it's a group of them, and they have groupthink, and they have you know all these things together that I fear. And so I believe that we we oftentimes forget that before. Before they get back to deliberate as a jury, they're individuals that can't even talk about the case. They're single humans, just like my client is, just like I am, with their own experiences, their own everything we talk about and we're that. And if we're not mindful of that, we talk, we communicate with them in a way that misses that fertile ground of humanity right in front of you in each one of those seats. Because we just address them as a whole before they are, before they've gotten to know who they're even working with. You know, if you take the personality profiles that I like to assess for each one of them, uh, or, or just their own life story, you know, you, you could know nothing, absolutely zero about personality. But if you know, for example, that someone was an engineer, or that someone like I had in my case was a truck driver, well, heck, use that. Right. Look at him and talk directly to him when you're talking about something that you think that he can convey and, and bring home when they're in deliberations. Um, we had in, in this case, my accident reconstruction was a as a an engineering degree, bachelor's, and then he went and got a master's in traffic engineering. He's written papers on air brakes and, and you name it, he's published. Extremely, extremely well qualified. The defense expert reconstructionist was a police officer, did traffic you know, investigations, never completed college, attended business school, but didn't finish. And I normally have no problems with that, no qualms with it. But if that's an advantage that I have in the case, I'm going to maximize it. So I highlighted Right. So this expert relied heavily on his ACTAR certification. So in, in the direct examination, my expert asked him, now, did you ever get some some certifications and other, you know, other than just being a professional engineer licensed by however many states? Oh, yeah, yeah. And tell me about that. Well, I got this certification, this certification. I'm a brake inspector. What about ACTAR? A-C-T-A. Oh, yeah. That, uh, yeah, I've done that one. Yeah. Well, what'd you have to do? Oh, it's like a weekend test i think i did <laughs> and did you keep it up yeah you know just doing what i need to do for an engineer i'm more than you know i get more than enough credits you know to keep that up but that i, I don't i don't even put that on my resume wow <laughs> <laughs> so you know that that's all the defense reconstructionists really relied on in terms of this you know objective qualification to, to be an engineer or to be a reconstructionist at trial but anyways i say that to say this he then gives his opinion. They're very broad. He doesn't go through any of the detailed analysis that my engineer went through and we made sure he did it live, you know, with a pen and paper in front of the jury. And then in closing, I turned to the youngest juror we had, which is a 21, 22-year-old guy that just moved over here from um, Colorado, who just graduated from engineering school. And, and after going through some of those things, I said, you have more, Mr. Police, you have more engineering experience than he does. 
and they all laughed and they appreciated it. And, and he, he was nodding along with me as I'm going over the analysis, you know. So it's the, those personal connections that you establish with them that draws them in. Yeah. On an issue, on sort of a relational level, uh, and, and, and hopefully, you know, overall with, with your case. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. That's great. I, you know, I never, I've been doing this for a long time. I never really thought that much about talking to each person individually. I mean, I, I try to make eye contact and talk to people, but the, the level of thought you put into it is really impressive. I'll give you one, one more little example yeah. of that, 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 you know, and I don't know, maybe it's not appropriate or right to do this, but we'll, we'll find out. Um, I think ultimately every single juror was Christian. And at least four of the ultimate six were very much devout Christians. Okay. And my client is Catholic, so a Christian, but you know, Catholic. And one of the things I had learned from him is that now he goes to church more often because he thought he almost died. Or, you know, he, he has this thing that he, God saved him because he was standing outside by the tractor trailer moments before the crash happened. And wow. he thought, you know, let me go inside the I'm not feeling right right now. Let me go inside my track. And sure enough, moments later, he got hit and, and, the, and the tractor trailer jackknifed. He was pushed, pushed over 100 yards, so 100 feet. So he would have been, you know, who knows? So one of the things we talked about is how the crash brought him closer to God. Uh, and we went over why. And, and you could see them appreciating that. Another thing we talked about is how we saw God's plan working out in his life. He was not married when his wife, so my client's from Cuba, right? him and his wife lived in Cuba with their kids, but it's a second marriage for both of them. He wasn't married when his wife was drawn with per, out of a lottery system for her residency in the U.S. and she left Cuba. And you, know, you live the rest of your life hoping that maybe one day you can join her. The very next year, he gets drawn. Oh, wow. Out of however many thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, he gets drunk. So, you know, we weaved sort of, you know, God's plan and, 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 and trusting and how, you know, that that played out. And so one of the issues we had in the case is that um, what was wrong with my client's trailer that broke him down and caused him to come to a halt in the middle of 95, not even be able to move it off the road. Yeah, yeah let's give, when you can, give a little details about what happened in the crash. So. Yeah, we're putting the, the cart ahead of the horse, aren't There were some tow truck drivers at the scene. I called all of them. We spoke with all of them. None of them remembered anything because they're doing three, four of these a day. And when we got to them, it was later. I came into the case a little bit you know, later. And um, they didn't, they knew enough. So we have, we're about to close our case, finish our case. I just finished with my client, who was my last witness. And my co-counsel comes over and says, hey, there's a tow truck driver outside. Said he's here to testify for the defense. I'm like, what? They don't know anything. Well, let me let me go talk to him. So I go outside. 
and and this guy has this whole plan to sink my case. And I'm talking to him and I'm realizing he's met with the defense a bunch. They've shown him documents. He's got this whole thing. There's nothing wrong with the with the trailer. I could get air through those brakes, no problem. I would have paid I would have been paid more money if I had to pin the brakes. And obviously I didn't have to. It's not on the receipt. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? So I walk back in and I say, Your Honor, we called the tow truck driver that's outside. <laughs> and the defense loses. They're like, what do you mean? That's our witness. I said, look, my case is still open. There's a witness sitting outside. I get to call my, my witnesses. Yeah. <laughs> and I called the tow truck driver in, 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 in an effort to mitigate what he was about to do. And, and it worked. It worked. But he still gave, you know, when I'm talking to him, it was one thing when the defense lawyer got to, got up and started asking him questions. He could tell you where the sun was and the barometric pressure at every inch of elevation on the roadway. And um, anyways, here's why I'm saying that. We had eight jurors on, you know, sitting, but only six get to go back. And the day before this happened, our first juror had a medical emergency and she, had, she could no longer be in the jury. So number seven, now becomes number six. And who is he? That's Mr. Cummins, a truck driver, a truck driver here in town uh, that wasn't going to sit and deliberate, but got to hear all of that evidence. And I'm, as I'm talking to this guy, I'm looking right at Mr. Cummins. And we can talk about it more a little bit later, but he was, I think, extremely helpful because of what we had to disprove with that tow truck, truck driver, um, I have to say. But in closing, I turned to Mr. Cummins and I said, Mr. Cummins, things work in mysterious ways. And you could almost hear an amen. <laughs> and I said, but I, I'm so darn glad you're sitting in this jury because I, 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 we're going to need your common sense here. And he looked right at me and gave me a big old smile and shook his head <laughs> like, don't worry, I got you. And, you know, so establishing that report with him at the individual level comes from talking to the jury, not the jury. So let's get a little background. Tell me about your case. Yes. <laughs> so my client, um, you know, let's talk about liability, I guess, this, the story there first. It, he picks up, he's from Miami. He picks up a container and chassis at the Port of Miami in the morning. He drives up um, through the state, gets to Jacksonville, experiences um, a an air loss in his trailer, the chassis, um, that's pretty immediate. And with that, all eight wheels on the chassis that's loaded lock up. And he's in the travel lane of 95, just as an on-ramp opens up to his right. But because there's vehicles on that on-ramp, he couldn't get off the roadway. Eventually, they come up a little hill and he gets stuck. He can't move it anymore. So he stopped there for a long time. Um, if you go by some GPS data that's not 100% reliable, it's 22 minutes. If you go by when the first person called 911 as a result of the crash, it's about 25 minutes. Um, my client, after experiencing the brake loss and coming to a halt, gets out, puts out five triangles. Uh, but he doesn't, you know, do 10 feet, 100 feet, 200 feet, like the rules say. He just 
goes from the truck to the next white line, to the next white line, to the next white line, to the next white line. Um, and that's how we were able to say, you know, 160 feet because there's 40 feet between the beginning on, of one and the, yeah. you know, the beginning of the next. So um, he calls his company, tells them what happened. Meanwhile, it's raining. So he goes back in the cab and that's when the crash happened. Fortunately, there was this lady, Miss Davenport, that was riding alongside the defendant's semi. And she comes over this little hill, sees my client stopped up ahead. And, and you know, she's, she's going to proceed because she's in the next lane over. But she notices that the defendant semi isn't slowing down. So she's looking up and she sees that he's looking down in the cab. So she now starts to slow down a little bit. He keeps going, never breaks, never does anything until the last minute he swerves, but clips the right rear of my client's uh, chassis and container, drags him, you know, jackknives his vehicle, drags him up some ways, and then uh, leaves him across the road before Ms. Davenport crashes into the, the wheels on my client's salmon after it's been, you know, jackknifed. So all along, we knew her story, um, and the defense didn't. So uh, we kind of let it play out. And then after their experts had given opinions and everything, we, you know, we take her deposition and she says, he was looking down and I'm like, man, you're going to hit, you're going to run into the, oh my goodness. And she, and she says, and she's a minister on the weekends. And she says, so I started breaking and praying, breaking <laughs> and praying. <laughs> and that was one of, you know, some, one of the lines that, that came through and, and, and we used the trial, but my client, he spoke barely, you know, in English. Um, he, was sitting in the sleeper berth at the time of the crash. So he gets launched into the front of the, the tractor and busts his head open. Big old laceration from his eyebrow up his head and suffers a pretty, pretty significant neck injury. And his ligaments and muscles and everything was strained up. They couldn't even figure out what to do because his neck was so hurt. Um, now, no herniations or anything like that at the at the hospital, but they noticed uh, a retrolisthesis, right? When one, one level is slipped over the, the, the next one. Had, they had him there for three days, just watching him. That. He had some dizziness right there and then. Um, and they will get, it initially gets worked up like a neck case, you know, because he ends up having neck surgery. But the dizziness doesn't go away. And then he gets better from the next surgery, starts driving for Uber. And everyone around him noticed that his mental health suffered tremendously from being an Uber driver in Miami. And that was because he was stressing some of the neurological aspects of vision and perception and, and navigation that had been affected by a brain injury that no one knew about then. So... We get involved in the case. We get into the right providers and all that. And uh, sure enough, two DTIs confirmed that he had a brain injury. And he starts getting all the treatment he needed. And, and every doctor has been pretty consistent on pretty severe neck injury requiring the neck surgery. And then the what we call a mild TBI, you know, that affects his balance and his ability to shift his vision around. So it's a, in that case, uh, in, in, a, in a nutshell, the, the case. <laughs> Obviously, you know, the, there's the human story behind all of that. that uh, we can spend a lot of time talking about. 
Yeah, so you've got some issues uh, you had to overcome in this case. So let's just start with the liability. I mean, your your car was blocking a lane of traffic on the roadway. He should have inspected the vehicle. How much fault did they put on your client? Zero. How did you do that? So first of all, it started a long time ago <laughs> um, with consulting experts understanding exactly. I mean, I had never had a chassis air loss case before. So I called an expert on commercial motor vehicle maintenance and had him explain to me exactly what that looks like and what that sounds like and what that feels like and all that. And then we did five sets of focus groups Wow! on liability alone. And I'll tell you the very first one, put 70% fault on my client. And every time we would learn something, we, you know, have questions we didn't have an answer for, and we go and do the work and find out and talk to the right people or get, you know, speak to the experts and develop the, you know, the, the analysis necessary to, to address concerns that they had. And the last one I had done before trial put 20% fault on my client. And, uh, but at the end of the day, I could tell that the reason they were putting fault on my client was just because some of the things that happened, they just didn't like, right? So for example, my client never called 911. He never called a tow truck, never called road service. He didn't put the triangles as far back out as he should have. He didn't get the truck off the roadway. And they, they understood why he didn't at first when there was traffic to his right. But when they heard that he had been stopped for over 20 minutes, they had a hard time believing he couldn't then move it off the road at some point during those 20 some minutes. So, you know, we went and did the homework. I mean, I went and, and spoke with Seaboard Marine, the owner of the chassis and the container, and we got the exact weight on everything and, and, and got the experts to calculate you know, go back out there, 3D the scene, get the right elevation so that we can explain why once you're now going uphill, you're not going to have, what does that do to the center of gravity? It puts us on the wheels that are locked. And now the truck with on wet pavement, is just isn't going to pull. So it really came down, moving off the truck, the truck off the roadway came down, came down to a 1700 pound deficiency in power. So that's very minimal compared to a 55,000 pound truck. But that's what the evidence was. As minimal as that was, that impossibility was minimal, but it was impossible. Yeah. And at the end of the day, right, even though they had all these questions and concerns, he didn't call the police and he doesn't speak English and this and that and the other, they all understood that those things didn't directly cause the crash. And here's why. Because... From, we were able to get a traffic study from the DOT, the Florida DOT, that showed that just recently, data collected showed that on that same lane that my client was driving, 31 vehicles would travel per minute. Wow. 10% of which are commercial vehicles. So if you do the math at 25 minutes, that's 700 vehicles or 70 semis that came up right behind them and didn't run into them. So in Florida, the jury select, the jury instructions on negligence or, or legal cause, right? It says negligence is a, is a legal cause of, of damages if it directly, continuously, and in natural progression causes right the harm at issue. 
that was our main argument. It was, look, we're not shying away from the fact that Mr. Valley didn't put the triangles out all 200 feet. He, he'll admit it. In fact, they didn't catch him on the lie to prove that it wasn't. He, he right off the bat, he just always said, I only put it out up to that fourth line, whatever that is. We know that that's 160 feet. We're not hiding from it. But the question is, was that the legal cause? If him not putting the triangles out far enough was the legal cause, if him not moving the truck off the roadway was the legal cause, that very next car would have hit him, or the fifth, or hundredth. Heck, the 200th would have hit him. That would be a natural, direct, continuous sequence of events. But how did they all miss him? Because that wasn't the problem. What's the legal cause? It, wasn't, it, it no longer was the triangles or not moving it or whatever happened at the Port of Miami at 10 a.m. that morning. It was someone not paying attention. So at that point, we can take away, we can forget that this was a semi or why it was stopped. It could have been stopped traffic. It could have been a brand new vehicle with an electrical problem. It could have been a young college student that ran out of gas. No one else hit him because they were doing what a reasonably prudent driver would have done, paying attention, adjusting speed, adjusting space, and avoiding The only reason this person couldn't is because they weren't doing the first of them, which is paying attention. And it stuck. It worked. And how did you handle, you know, uh, a traumatic brain injury when it was over a year before there was any diagnosis of a traumatic brain injury? Oh, man. So fortunately, we had severe trauma to the head, right? Um, but my client always said, no, I didn't lose consciousness. I didn't, some of the things he said didn't even make sense. Like, for example, he says that when he got out of the truck, the cop was there, but I didn't lose consciousness. Okay, <laughs> but it's all right. Um, I think the helpful fact that, that was well-documented was his issue with imbalance. Um, at the hospital, less than 24 hours after he's admitted, He's complaining of dizziness, 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 dizziness. And later on to his uh, neurosurgeon that's doing his neck, he's, you know, the pain in the neck is better, but I, I'm feeling like I, ver I have vertigo now or something. And fortunately, that was close enough in time to the crash that, you know, we could say, look, there was something going on. But how that really would have affected the rest of his life and his activities didn't really sort of reveal it itself until he started driving for Uber and taxing right his brain in a way that, that his brain just couldn't. And he tried because he's a family man and a proud guy to work through it, but people were people were noting that he was having nightmares. He was irritable. He was stressed out. He started getting really depressed. He would drive in his palms would sweat. Um, so, you know, it was just a matter of time until all of that boiled up to the point where, hey, let's look a little deeper. Instead of just looking at it with an MRI or a CT, let's do a more specialized MRI. And, and sure enough, that, that revealed the issue that they you know, suspect. And it made sense, right? Um, again, going back to talking to the juror, not the juries, we had a juror that had vertigo. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the defense did this on purpose. They, they were very intent of keeping on the jury some jurors that had chronic, degenerative, you know, non-traumatic uh, 
issues that caused them pain and problems. Like one of them had a cervical fusion. The other one had imbalance. The other one had uh, degenerative disc disease <laughs> right out of our client's medical records, right? Um, and, and, and I think that the strategy there is, look, here's someone with the same problems you have winning a whole bunch of money. You, you, you're not getting a bunch of money for your problems. Yeah. So why should, why should he get some? But you know, no one had all the same problems affecting their lives as much as it did my clients uh, in ways that no one would ever make up. You don't make your grandkids cry out of uh, anger or distance if you can avoid it. So the, the human story really added an immense credibility uh, to, to the medical story. Who did you use to tell the human story? We had a lot of before and after. We'll call it before and after witnesses. I'm not sure if everyone calls them that, but late witnesses, you know, human family. So we had his wife. We had his grandchild, his grandson that's uh, 11. We had his daughter. Um, we had one of his best friends. We had three co-workers. Um, one of the co-workers, unfortunately, couldn't testify because of the time. And this is one of the, those things that I had noted to talk about is Vordire ended up taking two full days instead oh, wow. of one. So we lost a day and a half between another day of Vordire and some argument in the morning and then openings and all that. So our entire order of proof was jacked up. We normally like to start with liability, then get into the damages. Nope, we started with a radiologist. <laughs> when we went into um, a doctor, another doctor, then we went into a neurologist. I mean, it was all over the place. So it took a lot of like framing, you know, uh, issues with each witness. And a lot of trusting the jury that they could, you know, separate things and, and keep things in the right box and then bring it together later. Because not only did it jack up our order of proof, we had expected the case to last seven to nine days of trial. It went through 13 days of trial. Oh, wow. So, you know, I, I will, maybe I'm wrong, but I think the defense really did everything they could to delay the trial because... Uh, the because obviously the reason I don't know, but I could see how it distances the deliberations from when they heard my evidence. Right, makes them less and less pleased <laughs> to be sitting there. And I don't know what other reasons they had, but ultimately, um, you know, I, we had a lot of concerns about how things were progressing, the order and the time that it was taking. But you know, we we remained consistent. We, we you know we had very specific purposes for every witness we called. Uh, we didn't harp on all of the same things over and over and over again with every witness. Each one of them had a distinct reason to be there. But yeah, the family was a big deal. And they each had, you know, their own version or their own perspective of, of the harm. And naturally gave us these just powerful, powerful bumper stickers or whatever, you know, powerful phrases that, that you know, help us put it together. Like, for example, one of the co one of the co-workers was the guy he used to work with that he introduced into trucking, who was a team driver with him. And one of the issues my client has now is not a confident driver. So I asked him, was Mr. Valley confident in his ability to drive back when you guys worked with him? Absolutely. 
And I was confident in his I, I put my life in his hands to sleep in that sleep of birth every day. Um, you know, little, little things that just came out of, you know, out of the sincerity of a witness on the stand that all ended up, you know, to, to see how, for example, the, the, I think I think on cross-examination, they asked my client's daughter, well, if your dad has so much problems with imbalance, I mean, he showers by himself, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And how does he do that? Well, he's got a, a chair in the shower, which I didn't even know about. Okay. Wow. I've been to his house and that must have been folded up. I never saw it. <laughs> she said, hmm. who's got a chair in the shower? Oof, there, you know. <laughs> yep. That's the old saying. Don't ask a question if you don't know the answer, if you're on the other side of the witness. So you got, you know, 4.6 million was economic damages, but you got $10 million for what's called human loss. How did you uh, persuade the jurors to allow so much money for the human losses? Yeah, so I've started using more recently what's called the what I call you know my damages pie chart, and it doesn't work in every case, but in a case like this with a lot of medical expenses in the past and in the future, it does work. So in Florida, we have several elements of non-economic damages. Pain, suffering, mental anguish, inconvenience, um, physical limitation, loss of enjoyment of life, permanent scarring. We didn't ask for anything for the scarring. Okay. So what I did is I created this pie chart and I separated it into six slices. And one of the slices was titled medical. And within that pie, that slice of the pie, I put the total amount of past and future medical expenses. And I said, I think we can all understand how $1 of medical bills represents dozens of dollars in effects throughout our lives. The, the inconvenience of going, the fear of what you're going to hear, the fear of what's coming. The pain that took you there, the suffering through the procedures or whatever the solution is, the uh, you know dealing with medical bills and, and facilities and scheduling and missing out on work and family and time. I mean, I, I don't have to go into through, through all the details for us to understand that every little bit of medical represents a whole bunch of effects in our lives. But let's let's talk about Mr. Valley specifically. And I went and I filled in each slice with examples from the case. Right. So, for example, in the physical impairment, you put sexual dysfunction, you put uh, imbalance, you know, I, I put double vision uh, in, in the loss of quality of life. I put the travels, the this and that and the other. Right. Um, and, and, and filled that whole pie. And uh, during the deliberations. Three hours, three and a half hours into the deliberations, we hadn't heard anything yet. And the jury rings the bell. And you know, your heart sinks and everyone gets a little giddy. Um, and the defense had actually just made us an offer, some high low that was ridiculous. And we said, Well, let's let me hear what the what 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 this is about, and I'll get back to you, because it turned out it was a question. And the question was, can we have uh, Mr. Pertigliati's pie chart? Oh, wow. Russian good. <laughs> good sign. We turned to the adjuster. We said, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So, so that worked, obviously. You know, they, they like that concept. 
but obviously, you know, there was a story, there was evidence tied to each slice and the, the details or, or the examples, right, uh, within each slice of all the other non-economic damages. I'll, I'll say a couple points that to me were very significant. One is, uh, you know, that I think it was Muhammad Ali that said, or it might have been Mike Tyson, actually, that said, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Tyson, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was Tyson, right? Um, and, and that was our order of proof. We were struggling, right? So we needed to readjust and be flexible. Um, you know, damages before liability. We got the delays in the case. So why why do I bring that up? Because I mean, th this is proof that you can only plan for so much um, if you don't have the actual evidence and the purpose for each witness and, and what you expect each juror to write down for each witness, right? Um, planned out well, you know, you could be in trouble because their order may change. The, you know, some of them may be tightened to a couple minutes. Then uh, my client ended up being on the stand for almost a day and a half. Wow. Um, so all of that just required a lot of flexibility and if we had our choice, obviously wouldn't have to be as flexible, but definitely something that I'm going to be more prepared for in the future. Another one um, is I am so particular about credibility, right? I tell my clients credibility is number one. I'd rather understate your claim and, and preserve credibility than overstated by 1% because credibility is lost over the whole. So how we looked how our table looked, how our witnesses looked, how our, our team worked together, how our documents came up, all reinforced credibility. Um, for example, my opening statement was very understated. I, I tend to err on the side of argument, but I knew who my opposing counsel was. I knew that he was gonna come out swinging just, you know, trashing us from the get. So I took the completely opposite approach of understating our claim and being very mild, very factual, no judgment. Just, this is what the evidence will show. This is how things happen. This is what was experienced by him. This is what the defense, you know, addressing the defense is very superficially, not getting into it, not trying to hit everything, just concisely. Until closing came, and then closing was a different story. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so you know, I, I emphasize you know that that concern for credibility. It's not just not lying. <laughs> it's it's how you present yourself, um, how your team works together, how you respect the judge, how you respect the juror's time, how prepared you are, how organized you are. Um, consistency between the witnesses. I, I always made sure that there was a just, I'm not talking about repeating the same thing, but some overlap in all of the witnesses' testimony, right? Where one sort of reinforced the other, right? So especially with the before and after witnesses. And, you know, between flexibility and credibility, you know, it will kind of leaves you with this trusting the jury. Yeah. That's, it's not easy, but um, this is one where we really had to because things came up last minute. There were points being made in closing argument that we, like, how can they be making that argument? And like, 
we just got to trust that they're seeing through it and that, you know, at a personal level, they understand it as a group that will reinforce that understanding and come through. And uh, gosh, they did. Well, I want to tell you, I'm so proud of you. You know, I've watched you kind of come up the ranks, uh, you know, met you when you're a younger lawyer. Uh, you're still fairly young. I mean, you're <laughs> small kids at home and stuff, but uh, you you definitely seeing your your incredible success and seeing the things you're doing make me so proud and so happy. Uh, really looking forward to next time I see you in person again. And uh, uh Congratulations. And I'm, uh, I've learned a lot. I've taken a lot of notes. I know when I'm doing a, a good podcast, when I'm taking a lot of notes of like what I want to do at my firm and what I want to change. And what, you know, and so I've taken a lot of notes on this one. And I hope uh, listeners, I hope you guys have gotten a lot out of it too. Uh, and look forward to having you all next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, Sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff-lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.